So for us, we're going to be in Acts 17. And before we kind of dive into that, just a word of reminder. So we're kind of tracking towards the end of the book of Acts. And uh, we have already finished Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, and that covered chapters 13 and 14. Uh, we're going to be in the, we're in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, starting kind of at the end of 15 and goes to the middle of 18. So we're obviously in 17, kind of in the middle there. Just in case you're a map person uh, and you're like, where are we? Where are these cities that I've never heard of and never been to, right? So the second missionary journey is extending around the Mediterranean region. And so hopefully it's that first map. Is that in there? All right, and um, even if you can't read any of those words, um, it's hard to find a really scaled-down map of the Mediterranean with the journey. So uh, basically, he started uh, over... Uh, in, in your top right in Antioch and is basically traveling uh, across Asia and he's going to, on that map, the top left. Uh, and so, and it, basically that's the edge of Greece that he gets to. We're going to Athens next week in Greece and then he comes back down uh, and ends up in Jerusalem and back in Antioch. And so uh, we're kind of tracking through the Mediterranean region. Next week, or uh, next missionary journey, he's actually going to track even further further to the west of that. Um, but just a, a microcosm of that in the first missionary journey is basically the top right corner of what he did in the second. And so the next map shows just the top right corner of the Mediterranean and what he uh, in, in his travels did. Um, that's just to orient you. Um, there's going to be no quiz on that afterwards, but just in case you're wondering, where in the world are these cities? And, you know, uh, this is what's happening. And so for our passage, he remember, he was encouraged uh, to leave Philippi, and, tra- and he traveled to Thessalonica. It's the capital of Macedonia, and it's about 94 miles away from Philippi. Uh, and so to get there, uh, he goes Philippi, um, Amphipolis, Apollo. Apoly- and then on to Thessalonica. He went on the east-west uh, highway, the Roman road that they called the Via Ignatia. Uh, the, um, and it's basically this amazing uh, road that the Romans had built in the second century BC, and uh, God used it for the expansion of the gospel. And so this is one of the main east-west thoroughfares that Paul is on. And, uh, and so this is the travels. So we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of Acts 17. Uh, some pretty interesting responses to the Word of God. Would you stand as we just express our submission to the Word of God? We long to hear from Him uh, and His Word. So, starting in verse 1, uh, Luke writes this Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, they formed a mob 
set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men, who have tur- these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they, a- they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people, in the ci- uh, the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them uh, therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul uh, brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray and just ask God to be in our midst as we hear from his word. Uh, Father, would you speak by your spirit? Uh, Father, we know that your word is powerful and effective And Father, it is powerful and effective because it comes from your mouth. It is God-breathed, and it is carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Father, do an amazing work in us today as we hear and read. Father, I pray, as the Thessalonians did, that as I speak, we would not receive my words as the words of man, but as I speak the scriptures, that we would receive it as the word of God. Uh, as you intend, and as you work powerfully through it. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you know anything about me, I'm not the handiest of guys, uh, and I have all sorts of uh, horror stories of me trying to fix things. And you might have had the experience of trying to fix something or trying to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, kind of bring something along, and something's in the way, and so you kind of push it out of the way. It's not released. It's not kind of moving. And so you kind of push it, and you're trying to do your thing, and then you lose grip on the thing that you're pushing out of the way. And what does it do? It snaps back and smashes your hand or it smashes you in some way, you know, like a bungee cord, you know, it's in the way, you kind of push it away, but then you lose and it's going to snap back with a force that's really going to cause you some harm. Maybe you're working on a tree outside, it's one of those little ones, you know, like that you think you can conquer, and uh, and so you kind of cut it a little bit and then you're going to kind of, you know, kind of try to bend it down and uh, you you go to bend it down and then you realize it has a whole lot more force than you and it snaps back. It might even throw you back a couple paces. Um, You might watch those pole vault fails on YouTube. Um, Highly recommend that to you if you want to 
enjoys some things. You know, the pole vault, you know, where the athlete plants the pole into the ground. It bends, and then when things go badly, it throws that vaulter in some uncontrollable way, in some direction. Uh, you know, when you exert force on something of power, and you don't exert enough force that it breaks, it is going to snap back at you. Let me submit to you, in a similar way, if you swing a sword at someone, they're going to swing a sword back. And that sounds pretty odd to think about, but that is the nature of the spiritual war that God's people are in. I think we tend to want to frame Christianity. As you come to Jesus, he makes your life glorious and you will never have problems again because he's going to give you wealth beyond your wildest dreams and health that you could not imagine. And let me submit to you, that is nowhere in the scriptures. Quite honestly, if you follow Jesus, he says you will take up your cross and follow me. And the cross is not uh, this rosy, uh, beautiful picture. It is the way of suffering, the way of death for Jesus, but it is death that leads to life that God brings. And so when we think of the warfare of the Christian life, chapter 17 just puts it right in front of us. That it is, it is not the apostles going out and everything just, you know, all the dominoes fall. It's they enter a city and there's a war for that city. And oftentimes they end up in jail or they run for their lives and they go to the next city. And then there's a war for the heart of that city. And, and so the nature of spiritual, uh, the, the spiritual life, the Christian life, is not one of just skipping along in the meadow it is knowing the living God and understanding the war and the spiritual war that we are in. Now, so when they go to Thessalonica here in chapter 17, they go for three Sabbaths, which means three different weeks that they go to the Jewish synagogue. And what do they do? In verse 3, they reason from the scriptures. So they go into this city, and Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And so he proclaims that Jesus was going to suffer, die, and rise but the Jews, that was, a, that was an abhorrent concept because what would they say that anybody that was on a cross that is hung on a tree is cursed? And so, so the, the idea that someone who is cursed is now the one who is the Messiah and the Savior uh, was often resisted in Jewish thought. Even though Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, places in Zechariah, all over the scriptures, there are numerous places that say that the Messiah would suffer because the idea of suffering was, an, was a curse. It was, it was rejected in Jewish thought. But it's an interesting to take note of Luke's words in verse 3. Okay? He is not simply stating the fact that Jesus died or suffered, died, and rose. He goes beyond that, and he says it was necessary that Jesus suffer 
and rise from the dead. It's the same words. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. It's kind of a, Acts is merely a continuation of that. And so when Luke is recounting Jesus' walk on the road to Emmaus, and he comes up uh, uh, with two believers uh, that are walking to that, uh, to that uh, city, and it's after the crucifixion and, and after the resurrection, and Jesus walks up to them, uh, and they're, they're sad. They're sad because Jesus had died. They're sad that Jesus uh, was not with them anymore, and not knowing that Jesus was the one that was walking with them. Uh, in Luke 24, verse 25, this is what Jesus says to them. Remember, it is necessary. Okay? Verse 25, it says to him, And he, Jesus, said to them, the two guys on the road, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Meaning the Old Testament has told you this, and you missed it entirely. Jesus goes on, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. And that was that the Christ, it was necessary that he die and rise. That he was going to suffer, bearing up under the wrath of God. He was going to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death, proof that his death was valid. And in that, as he explains those things, what occurs is in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded, meaning some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Great many believed, but not from the Jewish synagogue. It was from among the Greek people and many of the leading women, the Macedonian women, uh, were, were known throughout that region uh, as being very independent and very enterprising. Uh, Lydia, in her, as we saw last week, very, very uh, wealthy and successful businesswoman. But a great many people believed. And so when a great many people believe uh, in a, uh, a gospel that is radical, how do, how do people react around that? Well, verse 5 answers that question. Basically, it's jealousy and what comes from that. Verse 5, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So they, they, they form, they're jealous. They form a mob. They attack them. They're in an uproar. Uh, they don't find them at Jason's house where they were staying, and they drag Jason uh, um, out. And I love their comment. These men who have turned the world upside down, they've come to our city, and they're disrupting it here too. That's the concept of the world. Is it no wonder that the world hates the gospel? Is it no wonder that the world pushes against the things of Jesus? Because they even note in verse 7 that they're telling people to serve another king, Jesus. Because they proclaimed the kingdom of God. They're not saying overthrow Caesar, but there is a kingdom that's even greater than Caesar's. And the jealousy comes up, and there's a violent reaction. They even go to the next city to try to stop the spread. But why such a violent response? 
Jealousy, a mob, attacks, dragging people away, going to the next city to try to stop it. Why such a violent response is because they were speaking the word of God. And the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. A violent response comes back because they were swinging the sword of the Spirit. And, they, uh, and so when we proclaim the word of God, we ought to expect the same. And here's the thing. We are in a war, but we are not in a war against, like in this city, the Jewish leaders. We're not in a war against the government leaders in our city, in our town, in our nation. We are at war against the spiritual forces of evil. Look at um, on, on the screen, Ephesians 6, verse 12. And we talked about this at our prayer meeting on Wednesday. But Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battle that we are in. We're fooling ourselves and actually not doing ourselves any favors by thinking that we're not. The enemy, like we said on Wednesday, hates what our church is doing. The enemy hates God and hates his kingdom and its advance. The kingdom, or the, the enemy hates Jesus, hates his life of righteousness, hates his sacrificial death for sinners, hates his rising from the dead, and hates all that pushes back on his dominion of darkness. It was quoted by one, uh, one family, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, Peter says. Be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour the apostles walk into Thessalonica, they proclaim the word, and what comes back to them is the warfare of the evil one. You're like, oh good, I'm not Paul, I'm not out in another city proclaiming the gospel, but aren't we really fooling ourselves to think that the evil one isn't uh, desiring to destroy and crush any good move of the kingdom of God in this world? Any push against his kingdom of darkness, you're swinging the sword of the Spirit. What aspect of darkness, in a sense, can you push back on today, tomorrow at work this week, that is the work of God? It's a push that you can't win on your own. It is ultimately in the power of God. But here's the real question, is how is Satan seeking to destroy your marriage? How is Satan seeking to erode your family, your well-being, your love for Jesus? We are in a spiritual war, a battle. And it's, it's evidenced by what happens to the apostles in Acts 17. The sobering thing is, is a, it's a battle that you cannot win on your own. So where do we go? You're fighting an enemy that is more powerful than you and more powerful than me. So where do we go? We go to the transforming power 
of the word of God. The transforming power of the word is found in the scriptures. It is the living word of God that uh, accomplishes incredible things among uh, people and especially in God's people. Uh, in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away at, the, at night uh, to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So they go there again. And then, uh, so they travel by night about 50 miles uh, southwest um, of Thessalonica is Berea. But the Jews there, did you catch the description? They were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. And verse 11, it might be one of the greatest descriptions of people in their reception of the word in the scriptures. Verse 11 is just incredible. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They examined the scriptures. They received the word. And so, uh, so Paul, if we borrow from what, what Paul did in the first part of 17 in Thessalonica, um, it's not hard to believe that he would go, and when he went to the synagogue, he would do the same thing. What were the words that were described, uh, or how, described how Paul proclaimed the message of the gospel? So go back to the early part of 17, and, and I'm looking at verses 2 and 3. So in, in there, you see that Paul reasoned. We also see that Paul explained. We see that Paul proved. And we also see that Paul uh, proclaimed the gospel and proclaimed the word. Uh, you know, that idea of explaining is to open the scriptures. Um, the idea of proving is to carefully lay out and answer questions. The idea of proclamation is merely an announcement. And so all of these words are used to explain what Paul was doing in taking the message to the Thessalonians. And I would imagine with the same intensity, he brings it to the people here in Berea. I want to submit to you that the transforming power of the word, yes to the spiritual forces of evil, it's, it's like that of warfare. But to those who believe, it is the power of God. Hear this in Romans 10, that it's good news. It's a sweet thing that we would bring. Romans 10, Paul writes this uh, in verse 14. says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. Basically, if someone hasn't believed, how will they call on the one they've not believed in? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? Go to the next verse. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. It is a beautiful thing to bring the word because they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then one more verse to wrap that up. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. And so if we want to see the transforming power of God come into somebody's life, there's a proclamation and an announcement, an opening of the word of God that leads to faith, that leads to the transforming power of God. So Paul proclaims it, reasons, explains, and proves it. But how did the Bereans respond? Back in, in verse 11, they examined the scriptures daily 
to see if these things that Paul and Silas were saying, to see if these things were so, to see if these things were true and accurate. So what are the scriptures that they're talking about? Well, the scriptures are the written-down version of the Old Testament, the scrolls of the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. They were living the New Testament. Uh, and so for them to search the scriptures, they were going back to, uh, to uh, examine the Old Testament scriptures that were there. So to do that, where would they go? Because most people have a Bible. You know, most people have multiple versions of the Bible in their house. These people lived in a city where there was probably one uh, scroll or, mo- or one, one uh, collection of scrolls of the Old Testament. And so for them to daily examine the scriptures, they would go back to the synagogue, they would open the scriptures, and they would read and examine the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. They came back themselves. They didn't rely on a preacher They didn't rely on a scholar. They didn't rely on a podcast. Those are all great. Paul obviously preached and proclaimed. But then there's something that that ought to occur in in, uh, our response to hearing the word is that we ourselves examine the scriptures and they did it daily. It's wild to think that these people are from Berea, because I don't know if you've ever noticed a Berean academy, a Christian academy with the name Berea in it. The reason they do that, and tons of organizations and schools have picked that name up, is because of their intent, uh, intentional, purposeful, in-depth study of the Word of God. There's no substitute for the Word of God in their lives, and there's no substitute for the Word of God in yours. What's the place of the scriptures in your life? Sunday morning's a wonderful thing, but I liken preaching on Sunday morning, uh, it's necessary and good, it's helpful, but it's like a meal. You know, can you tell me what you ate for lunch on Tuesday? Probably not. You know, what'd you eat for dinner on Thursday? I mean, if you thought real hard, you could come back to it, but... But yet, without eating those meals, you are starved, right? So there's a there's there's a place that preaching that that brings us to that kind of gives us a baseline, but it cannot be your full diet of food. Let me submit to you that there's no substitute for your personal examination of the Word of God. Because it is the life-giving word of God, the powerful, transformative word of God. In both Berea and Thessalonica, many people believed. They were persuaded uh, by the word. And I want, to hear, I want you to hear the transforming power of the word. And we're going to take a look, a really quick look, at the people um, of Thessalonica. And the letters of the Thessalonians were written to these people that came to faith in Acts 17. So they come to faith in Acts 17, and so they're there for at least three Sabbath days. And what happens? Paul and Silas get driven out and they run away. So what will happen to this church? Paul just just bailed on them. What's going to happen to them when they feel the pressure of that kind of uh, persecution or that kind of opposition? Are they going to just fold up? Are they going to go away or are they going to thrive? Well, the transforming power of the word is helpful uh, in being able to see what occurs there. Go to 
go to First Thessalonians. So go, go a few books to the right in, in your Bible. And here, just here's a, a quick survey of Paul's letter back to these people. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He remembers them and he thanks God for them and their steadfastness, their stick to in the faith. Go to, the, go to verses 5 and 6 of that same chapter. That, that because our gospel came to you, not only in word— but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much, uh, in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, they hear the word, they receive the word, and it starts to change them. How did it change them? Look at verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians 1. For they themselves, these are other people in Macedonia, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. He's meaning that they received the word well. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they received the word, then they turned away from their idols uh, to serve the, uh, the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, from whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they turn from their idols to wait for the son uh, to come. Uh, and then, just so that we understand that this is not the message just for conversion only, go to chapter 5. So chapter 5, verse 23 and 24 this is Paul's benediction over this church. This is the ongoing nature of God's work in these people. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. The power of the word transforms us. The power of the word causes us to turn from our idols to the living God. The power of the word sanctifies or continues to make us more and more after the likeness of Jesus. It is the power of the word that drives us to the table. And so our kids are going to come back in. Our kids are going to come back in the, in the service uh, and because we want them to understand and see tangibly the necessity of the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That, those, um, that, that even those that might be displaced from COVID, that might be online on the podcast, uh, we would love to bring the church to you. In that you might not be here to partake of this sacrament, but we would love to gather outside in your yard and you can stay a safe distance away. We would love to bring the church to you, bring word and, and, and worship together and then partake of the sacrament with you. 
uh, because we know many of you are uh, many of you are um, uh, staying away due to underlying health conditions, and we would love for you to be able to partake of this sacrament. So please call me. A couple have already expressed a desire for this, and so please let us know so that we can bring the church to you. And so as we think of the proclamation of the gospel, and I realized I didn't tell Jason I was doing this, so hopefully he can flip the camera. So I apologize to the podcast. Um, uh, as, as we transition, we just looked at the necessity of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We looked at the amazing power of the word the written word, the spoken word, the word that is preached. But what is this? This is not a written word. This is a tangible word. These are visible words of God that Jesus has instituted to explain the work of God and God's grace to us. Uh, This is uh, a sacrament, a sign that helps us know Jesus and his grace. And so that's why we want our kids here. We want our kids here so that they can see the visible sign uh, that Jesus institutes so that they, they might understand in a new way. Because this is sensory. We can taste it. We can see it. We can touch it. We can smell it. Uh, it is a sensory experience of the grace of God. Everybody wants a church experience. Let me submit to you, that's not about lights and smoke machines. That's about the tangible elements that Jesus gave to his church that we might partake, that we might experience his grace together. Uh, Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would take these very tangible uh, elements, uh, God, uh, bread and a cup, Uh, that signify and point to uh, your death, your resurrection, your payment for our sin. Father, it also points to us being washed clean, us being united to Christ. Father, I pray that you would build our faith because we partake. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just a reminder, we're not going to be distributing elements uh, due to uh, uh, the virus. And so if you didn't get uh, some of the prepackaged elements, there's some in the back in the, in the fellowship area. And you can go now and grab those in, and join us back. Because Paul writes this, For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this table is for those who actually want to proclaim that Jesus died for your sins. The ones who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, this table is for you. If you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, if you have not professed your faith in him, I would ask that you actually not partake this morning. Not as any kind of penalty, 
but because the, the, that same passage in 1 Corinthians 11 says that those people were eating and drinking judgment upon themselves because they were partaking in an unworthy manner. Because here's the truth. Not one of us can be right before God. Not one of us deserves to be in his presence unless we are covered by the blood of a sacrifice. Jesus being the spotless lamb of God. Unless you are covered by the blood of Jesus and claim his death for your sin, his resurrection so that you might have new life, that's the only thing that gets you rightly into the presence of God. And that's what we celebrate here. That's why Paul goes on to say a man or a, a man or a woman ought to examine himself before the Lord. Are you partaking, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? And so as we have these elements, uh, remember that this is the broken body of Jesus given for you and the blood shed for your sins. And so let's partake together of the, the body together where Jesus says, this is my body, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, I'll remind you to probably open this away from yourself just so that um, you might not have an accident. Uh, so Jesus says, this is my body given for you.